Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe that the enemy is after your mind and heart, and so we're stepping into the fray. The world is captivated by the war between Russia and Ukraine, so Christians all over are asking hard questions about how we should respond. Is war always wrong for Christians? How might Christians fight in a war in a way that honors God? And how should governments think about their responsibilities in times of conflict? Lives are on the line, and the world needs Christians to know what to do when the bullets start flying. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, welcome to the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture podcast, the latest installment in a growing list of podcasts addressing questions from a biblical perspective about our our faith and how it interacts with and applies to culture. My name is Keith Lowry. I'm an elder here at Lake Ridge Bible Church, and uh, I'm going to be kind of facilitating the discussion today. With me are three other uh, esteemed participants, one of mm-hmm. whom is uh, our one of our lead pastors, Van Minter. Hey guys, good to be with you. And uh, Kyle Wisdom, who works with our students here and leads their uh, discipling effort, is going to be with us today. Very happy to be considered esteemed. Yep. <laughs> As opposed to steamed, which is <laughs> yeah. hopefully we won't be steamed I before the podcast. my clothes starts. ever, yeah. I don't think. And Ben Lowry, who is another one of our lead pastors, is here with us today as well. Good to be here. Guys, the the drums of war are loud in our ears right now uh, in the world and through the media. And so I thought it would be useful for us to talk a little bit about uh, Christian thinking uh, as it relates to the question of war and violence. And I thought I'd open with a a, a, uh, a remark made by the philosopher Immanuel Kant from the late uh, 18th century, who said, the state of peace among men living side by side is not the natural state. The natural state is one of war. Was he right about that? I mean, I, the history kind of bears that out. Um, there... If you take a Christian perspective on the nature of humanity being one of sin and sort of aimed at self-promotion and um, self-centeredness, then obviously those are the conditions that make um, th- that make possible the likelihood of war. So, so with sin being in every human heart, then yeah, I, I would say that peace has historically been <clears throat> the anomaly rather than the norm. Yeah, I would. S- I would agree with that and maybe theologically caveat that with the nuance of it's also the most unnatural thing that people do in the sense of it's most against our created nature. So it's the thing that probably most characterizes fallen sinful humanity, and yet it's the one thing that most blatantly disregards some of those things that are fundamental about what God created us to be. Um, both the destruction of life itself, but also the destruction of, you know, what it means to be an image bearer of God, I think, sort of inherently ruins some of those things. Yeah, I would say obviously war wasn't part of the original design, but now with 
the fallenness of our world. It's something to be, um, I guess, expected in many ways. So um, is it the case that uh, from a Christian or a biblical perspective that um, that violence is uh, prohibited in, in any case, in all cases, and uh, there's no context in which any entity or person can engage in violence? I think it's the case that violence is prohibited against me. Yeah, well, specifically. But, uh, that goes without saying. Ben. I, that's how I read. That's what the Bible yeah. says to me anyway. There yeah. might be a that's, reason that's why we have truth, to right, ben? protect truth. you specifically. Right. Right. Yeah. You've been reading the Cotton Patch Gospel. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I, I think that there's there's evidence, in fact, that God intends for violence to take place in the, in the sense, you know, Paul mentions in Romans that um, God has entrusted the sword to the government, which is to say that um, they're, they're, they're supposed to reward well-doers and punish evildoers, um, but also wage war, I guess, when, when necessary. So there's, there's a certain um, inevitability to, um, to the question of war, I guess, that we're, we're highlighting right now, but there's also, I would say, something about that that's wrapped up in God's intention um, it's hard though because Jesus, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and when he showed up, it was like, um, it, it, it's it was all angels and Christmas carols and and <laughs> you know, gifts being given under Christmas trees and things and peace on earth, goodwill to men, and then, and yet God entrusts the government with the sword, you know. Um, so I, I get the tension in the question because clearly violence isn't something God loves. But it's also something he expects, and in uh, at tasks, I guess, with certain agents. Well, and it's to your point. That's where I had my Bible open. Thanks for taking my passage. But, um, but that violence is meted out on those who rebel against authority and do wrong. He says. So, if you want to live free from fear, now again, in the context, this may be talking about us within our country and our local government. I guess the question mark in my mind is: Does this bleed over into the situation we're talking about? you know, with a Russia-Ukraine situation, um, should we have that same perspective on authority and government structures whenever, you know, it comes into another context? Uh, I would think, you know, in in what I'm seeing here in Scripture, that uh, the sword should come against those that that do evil and rebel against what is just good and right, Um, even though they may not acknowledge the Word of God themselves. It's still something to be... Um, fought against and punished whenever people are not, uh, begin acting this way toward others. Yeah, I think the biggest distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian when it comes to violence is specifically the whys and the hows. So throughout the scriptures, God gives very specific commands to his people about what constitutes a good reason for committing acts of violence, and also gives very clear instructions about how that violence needs to be carried out. Some of those are very specific. Like we, uh, one of the big uh, topics in Old Testament studies is the idea of the ban, something that God gives specifically to the people of Israel to um, fully remove uh, very sinful people groups from the land of Israel so that they can have the promised land that God intended to give them. And then you have more general commands, it seems, about the nature of how human beings ought to treat one another in conflict in general. Um but it's by no means something that's categorically removed. I mean, you have great 
great heroic examples like David um, throughout First and Second Samuel, men who uh, stepped into very unjust and difficult circumstances, but fought wars for valiant and good reasons. I think even one of my favorites, I would say, is uh, Abraham, whenever his uh, nephew Lot is stolen away by five kings that have come into his area, uh, the uh, kings of the land were not able to go and rescue him. And so it says that Abraham basically gets all the men of his household, some 300 dudes, and he says, we're going to do this instead. And so he goes and rescues all of the captives, both of his family and uh, the families of everyone around, and kind of saves the day. And then the first communion service was held. Yeah, right uh, after that. Yeah. Um, and so Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. You know, it says the question about, is violence ever appropriate? Uh, but then I've heard other well-respected uh, men in the pulpit, you know, say that the Lord never expected us to be doormats just to be pounced upon whenever injustice is, is being enacted towards somebody. I heard a guy running for office the other day against, he's a newbie to the political scene and talked about the candidate he's running against. Uh, who's been in the office forever, an older man. He says, look, this guy has made up lies about me. He's said things that aren't true. You know, the Bible says, turn the other cheek. He says, folks, I've got two sets of cheeks on this body, and he slept all four of them, so I'm not sure what to do now. <laughs> so I'm going to go after him. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you mentioned this, that Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Someone pointed out... Um, what Jesus actually said was, if if Jesus if Jesus if someone if Jesus does it, just take it, <laughs> brother. Um, but uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, why why would that matter uh, in a world where ninety nine percent of humanity are right handed? To be slapped on the right cheek would be to be backhanded. He's talking about a personal insult. Someone yeah. who has a personal. Yeah insult attack against you turn to him the other also in other words don't return kind for kind mm -hmm. um yeah so this different it, it's it's not a wholesale um denouncement of all manner of violence ever to mm -hmm. your point it's um it, it's there's a difference between kyle you were bringing this up there's a difference between what sort of is on a personal mono e mono expectation ethical expectation and what god expects of government like even in our book Esther that we're studying right now the the Jews are commissioned by the government to go kill all the people who hate them and they slaughter like 75,000 people um and and that's a great success and they celebrate a big feast at the end you know that's it, it, it's it's hard for us to imagine um the kind of violence i think because we've endured such at least the semblance of peace it's hard to it's hard for us to imagine the kind of violence that God sanctions in Scripture. I, th I think maybe we should dig in a little bit deeper on this passage in Romans 13. I want to read it and then ask a few questions about it, because I think it will bound our discussion a little bit in terms of how we exercise discernment as we think about the violence we see in the world, the violence we see between countries. Uh, let me just read verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13. For rulers, it says, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. This is your first key principle, I think, that um, the rulers are invested with the responsibility of distinguishing between good and bad and being a terror to those who are bad. Uh, and then it says, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, 
and you'll receive his approval. So once again, it's just driving home this point repetitively that the the magistrate or the the person in position of governmenting authority is distinguishing between good and bad and um, approving of those who do good. It says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so I think there's a sense in which these government officials are put in place to mete out temporal justice in the world, right? And by temporal justice, I mean they're not deciding who's saved and who's lost, right? But they are in the moment, in the midst of our time-based existence, they are wielding, in some cases, violence to bring God's wrath down on the, on the evildoer. Now, um, it seems to me that if the governor, governing body's role is temporal justice, then anything they do in terms of exercising their violence that's legitimate has got to be in pursuit in some sense of justice. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it's unwise to take Romans 13 as a blank check for government authority to mete out violence on its citizens or its civilians or or other governments or other civilians for that matter um, because there's obviously very strict uh, guidelines and purposes that God has given the government to enact. You know, we see specifically in uh, Genesis chapter 9, a passage we've mentioned before in this podcast, that the first... Um, command that God gives to human society when they're creating the first human society after the flood in Genesis chapter 9 he tells Noah and his family hey you guys are going to have to understand that part of your job is going to be if someone sheds the blood of man because one of the things that brought the flood in fact was not just sinfulness that's rampant but violence in particular being just all over the place and so God says one of the things that human society has to do is protect the life of innocent people and if someone is going to transgress that command, if someone's going to hurt innocent life, it is your responsibility to prevent them from doing that in the future. And if that means taking their life, then that's what's necessary. So, yes, government has to be bounded in what they're doing as well. So we, yeah, I think the question that's running, maybe not just through my mind, but a lot of people's minds right now is, so if, if these agents of God, servants of God, were put there for a reason— what happens when those agents aren't doing their job? Yeah, and so we've got a guy like Putin sitting in, in you know, the presidency of Russia. Is it then incumbent upon other agents of the Lord and governments around the world to then enact justice toward a man like that that is abusing his power? I mean, that's that's the thing that's running through my mind right now. What 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 do next steps look like for? Uh, these servants that God has put in place to to deal with injustice, and I think that's what the Ukrainian people are crying out for: help us stand against this injustice. Yeah, you 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 highlight Van that reality that um, there are there is such a thing as a bad government. You know that that um, even though God has entrusted or tasked that government uh, with. Uh, the sword, so to speak, putting down the bad guy and uh, uplifting the good guy. There are governments who will abuse that sword and turn the turn the sword on the good guy and uplift the bad guy. Um, and so, then what do you do then? You know, wh- mm-hmm. what 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 recourse do you have if you're Ukraine or you're some 
little guy who's getting pummeled by, and and there's all kinds of, uh, so really, this whole every all the objections we're talking about, there is a way to wade through this. There's like we're not we're not shooting from the hip here. There's a there's something called just war theory right. that Christians have developed. Maybe we ought to talk a little bit about some of the principles of a just war theory so that we can um, navigate the current event a little bit better. Yeah, maybe just to provide a little context, <clears throat> yeah. going all the way back to at least to Augustine, who mm. first started dabbling in this and then really fleshed out by Thomas Aquinas uh, in the Middle Ages in a much more uh, robust way, there developed this whole uh, thought among Christian uh, thinkers about what constitutes just war, and it really kind of has two aspects of it. What constitutes a just reason to go to war, and then how how do you conduct yourself justly in the midst of a war? And so those two uh, criteria were kind of uh, really enunciated and grappled with and have found their way into a variety of Christian denominations' statements on Christians' involvement in the world. And so, um, and it's variously called just war theory, just war tradition, people call it. Um, fewer people refer to it as just war doctrine, I think, because there's, you know, this has been a debated issue through the years, and I don't think it's, um, it's, it's largely settled, but not completely settled, I think, is maybe a good way to say it among Christian thinkers. So, I what? think it's harder in modern warfare. Some of these, like what we're about mm. to discuss, in modern warfare, some of the principles we'll discuss are blurred, um, and we'll we'll get to why that is. But I would say just war theory is still the best thing going. It's still the best framework for organizing your mind in during times of war. And anything that you can latch onto as a Christian during times of war as a yeah. mental uh, framework is is good. This is probably the best thing going as far as that goes. I would just say, you know, looking at the Romans 13 passage and, and government agents that God has designed doing their job, uh, when that's actually put into practice the way it should. I, now, when I lived overseas, you know, Saudi Arabia had some very strict uh, guidelines government. So if you stole, I mean, they truly would cut a hand off and put it on a fence post and you saw it driving into your compound and it was a warning to you, don't think about doing this. In the five years that we lived there, murder's a no-no. You know, don't don't do that, or you will lose your head. And and one time in our five years there, were we even aware of anything like that happening? It happened in a public square where the guy was beheaded. They brought as many people in to witness this, and and so, and they can go to the extreme over there, no doubt. They can abuse it. It, it can get kind of messy, um, you know, in how they view who's guilty and who's innocent, but. All that to say, when you have an agent, a government agent that means what they say, and they will punish wrongdoing, you just don't hear a whole lot of that stuff going on. So, I mean, it it you see <laughs> the benefit to some degree, you know, there when they are doing their job. But anyway, I just yeah, yeah. I, I say that because sometimes we're really good at, at talking a good game, but we don't always put into practice what we say we're going to do if. And yeah. uh, I think it, it just kind of encourages more bad guys to show up on on the yeah 
I think cool in the scene. American system in particular was originally crafted with a lot of presuppositions about the abuses that governments are mm. susceptible to. Mm-hmm. And so it's really framed to con- restrain government overreach, mm-hmm. or at least originally was. And so I think a lot of the um, reluctance you see in the American, historically American justice system to to be precipitous and take quick action is really because of concerns about overreach and yeah. Yeah. inappropriateness. But um, anyway, uh, in terms of what Christians have kind of conceived of as just causes mm-hmm. for going to war, do you guys know some of those rationale? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got them written down. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't, this is not something, honestly, this whole, this whole thing has sort of made me dive back into the, the history books and theology books and figure some things out. But, um, you know, we, we've, we've danced around a few already. I'll just mention a couple that we've already danced around. Um, we, the principle of a just cause, okay, is, is this a sort of kind of in the name, just war theory, <laughs> but, um, a just cause would be, uh, righting a grievous wrong, reject, redress some injury or for self-defense, you're being attacked unjustly by someone else. So there's a just cause there. Um, another one would be um, a principle of legitimate authority. You really do have the right. You're entrusted. You're a go- recognized government ag- agency with who bears the sword, right? So you're not just uh, Batman. You're not just a billionaire <laughs> vigilante going around punching people <laughs> who are doing wrong. That's that's not a case of just war. Um, and then um, the other one that we kind of danced around... Um, ah, civilian immunity, I would say. Um, we've, mm-hmm. we've sort of touched yeah. on a little bit, a principle of civilian immunity. Yeah. So another one would be the <laughs> idea of having a right intention. So it kind of goes right along with the idea of a just cause, but you say, okay, if there's been, for instance, an, an act of self-defense, if it's a war of, we're being attacked, we have a just cause to defend ourselves as a nation. So the just intention, the right intention to follow that up would not be so we're going to go and invade their country because they made us mad or whatever. The just intention would be we're going to reestablish our defense and we're going to kick the bad guys out, right? So uh, that you're actually aiming for something. But also something interesting too in a lot of just war theory, they talk about the idea of a reasonable chance of success, mm-hmm. which is a really uh, – this goes back to the idea that um, – you know, Christians don't want death. <laughs> like we don't, we don't like violence. God does not have any joy in the death of the wicked, though He uses that as a method to achieve His ends from time to time. Um, for Christians, we, if we're going to engage in violence, there needs to actually be the expectation that what we're about to do is going to improve the overall situation. So, so here's an interesting insight: <clears throat> Jesus was a proponent of that particular principle of just war. He said once, what king goes to war unless he's first gauged whether he has the ability to win it? Um, and it, this was his whole question of discipleship and those who sort of put their hand to the plow and turn back. And he uses this example, this exact example, as a king who has the responsibility to go to war, you are going to first gauge whether or not you can win the war. And if you can't, if there's no reasonable prospect for success, then you shouldn't do it. That was sort of the, the underlying assumption of Jesus' statement. Mm. Um, which is kind of interesting. So, so we were kind of creeping in on a couple of overarching ideas, I think. One is that there's a case to be made for 
legitimate authorities wielding the sword, that there is, uh, but they have to do it in the interest of justice, mm-hmm. and not just justice based on how they feel like defining it, but justice as it relates to what's true uh, about the distinctions between good and evil in the world. I think we've raised questions about um, <clears throat> what happens, you know, I don't think we've answered the questions, but we've raised questions about what happens with governments who either misconstrue justice or actively pursue what's bad. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's limited to what's going on in the Russian-Ukraine context. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, you go all the way back to the American founding and the entire justification written up in the Declaration of Independence was that uh, that King George had abandoned his obligations to do to do justice to his subjects. And so their argument was, and I think you would hear this in the sermons among the congregational churches all over New England in those days, was that when a government... Um, basically fails to do the duty outlined in Romans 13 of administering justice, then it ceases to have the legitimacy of God's ordaining to, to play that role. And so this is how they justified, in some sense, uh, I think, revolution at that time, right? Yeah, and, it, well, and even beyond that, back then, it was sort of the question of, is this even legitimately a, a colonial government. Right. I mean, they'd been living for a couple hundred years, right? Completely distinct from from England in that regard, right? So, but we've got this principle that we're kind of, you know, kind of marching around about illegitimate behaving governments as it relates to their use of violence in mm-hmm. pursuit of non-just ends, uh, and then we've got all this stuff going on over in Europe right now, and. Um. Uh, what what do we actually know uh, in the yeah. European situation versus what we hear? Yeah. I mean, what kind of <laughs> distinctions should we make about that kind of thing? Yeah. So uh, it was it was pretty funny. So Ben and I were having a pretty interesting conversation just the other day, um, because I, I've we should have was, hit record. We should have hit record. Many conversations yeah, in yeah. my life. I was like, ah, we could have. That would have been nice. Um. Not because I say anything intelligent necessarily, but I talk to a lot of intelligent people. So we were having a conversation about this, and I was saying how hard it is to believe so much of what I see coming out of both news organizations as well as, I mean, half the stuff news organizations are reporting are what they're seeing on social media. So it's like you'll get an article from a legitimate news source, and it'll be reported from Ukraine, but it's you know some shaky cell phone video from someone, and yeah. it's and all the information, quote-unquote, is in the subtitles. So it's not right. even necessarily something you could even verify with your eyes. Um, so it's you so much humility, I think, in going into a situation like that, especially a, a conflict with the amount of history that that conflict has. Uh, I just have a hard time believing anything I see um, out of coming out of any of that, really. Yeah, I, I've, I've adopted the position that... Um, you know, there's there there are certain principles in in U.S. media, and obviously they've been pushed to and past the breaking point um, on more than one occasion. But uh, j- principles of journalism still pro- hopefully apply in some cases, and I, I I don't I don't tend to doubt that what we're seeing 
over like like some a, a true skeptic would say is there even a country called russia <laughs> i mean do how do we know is the world round or flat who's to say um i i think there are things that we can know russia has invaded ukraine and they've broken multiple treaties in order to to make that happen um you know i i was listening to another podcast the other day there was a a, a true expert in um, military tactics and military history, and he was explaining that in 1994, um, Ukraine, I want to get this right, uh, Ukraine, um, oh, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, I think were the three countries, they retained the nuclear warheads of the former Soviet Union when it collapsed. So Ukraine actually had the, the, the world's third largest nuclear arsenal at its disposal in 1994. And the United States and Great Britain uh, sort of wined and dined the Ukrainians, uh, pressured them into giving that back to Russia because we didn't want the proliferation of nuclear warheads around the world. So we wanted to give those back to Russia so that only the United States and Russia had these kinds of weapons, yada, yada. Ukraine agreed but they agreed only if Russia and Great Britain and the United States and the other countries involved would agree, sign a treaty, sign a pact that they would always respect the borders of the Ukraine nation as it was laid out in 1994 and never invade them. Russia signed that. And then here we are um, in 2022 and they have flatly broken that uh, promise. And so um, that's, that's just history. To me, it, it, that's something we do know. So you're asking, what can we know? And, and it, it may be hard to know some things. I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned, really, whether Russia told their—whether Putin and the uh, military officials told their soldiers that the Ukrainian government was overrun by Nazis, and that's why we're invading. Although that's, what, that's, what, that's the story that's coming out. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I do know that Russia has invaded Ukraine, and they, they were, are breaking— um, world treaties to do that. Yeah. Well, and just the idea that there's so many things coming out. Uh, you know, everybody in war uses propaganda, so it's like both sides are going to use propaganda that doesn't necessarily tell us what's true and what's false. But one of the things that we can understand is for the Ukrainian people, it becomes very clear. If you're being attacked, you must defend yourself. You know, if, if yeah. when it comes to a just cause, there is no more clear-cut just cause in just war theory than you've been invaded you need to defend yourself. And with Russia, I think the most clear-cut thing they've definitely not done, regardless of even if you agree with what they've claimed about the situation, which is the last piece of the puzzle for just war theory, which is it has to be the last resort. And even if everything Putin had set up into this point were actually true, which I don't, th I don't think it is, he, he did not use war as a last resort. He used it as at the very early on in all of the negotiations that are going on here. And so at, at that level, at the very least, we can say Ukraine must be able to defend itself and to do so justly. Yeah, I'd say based on what we've heard, assuming it's reliable, <clears throat> what does it say about a leader who has cut off all um, communication with the outside world to his own people? You know, what kind of message is that sending? I mean, if you feel like this was a just cause, if you're Vladimir, uh, what do you have to hide? You know, why are you not explaining this to your people? Um, and 
so that's one. And then when you hear the stories, again, assuming that what you're getting is reliable of women and children hiding in, in subways and bomb shelters now being targets of the missile strikes, um, you know, you're, it's like no rules apply in his thinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying it's time to fight and go to war. Yeah, yesterday you know? during church, I, I saw before we walked into the service that they they wiped out a hospital. I'm mean, not a hospital, a uh, an airport that was in the humanitarian corridor that was being used to get people out, to sit civilians out. And they completely wiped this, leveled it, just raised it to the ground. Um, and that's just another in a long list of um, Russian assaults on. Uh, the civilian infrastructure. So there, you know, the, the principle of civilian immunity has sort of gone out the window. I mean, you could walk down the list of, and I've got them here in front of me, you could walk down the list of just war principles, principle of a just cause. <coughs> Russia doesn't have that. Uh, Ukraine does. Principle of last resort. Have they exhausted every avenue of uh, before going to war? No, they didn't. Um, well, there's also this principle of disproportionate harm uh, in, yeah, in order proportional for you to be, means. Yeah, well, no, even disproportional harm. In order to be justified, you have to uh, it, to undertake war. It has to be because the harm that you have been subjected to is so grievous that it can only be uh, addressed through that means. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not even, I guess, entirely understanding what the claim is about any harm done by Ukraine. This is a yeah, this uh, is I think, the Russian. The Russian claim is that this is a liberation mission. Yeah. It's you know like there's not necessarily been any harm. Yeah. I think there's probably some resentment back in the day that yeah. this used to yeah. be part of the Soviet empire. Well, but. and there's even the the claim that the Ukraine was going to invade Russia, which you know yeah. we all sort of laughed at. Though they have claimed their 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 ultimate goal eventually was to uh take retake Crimea. But what's funny is that was an area that Putin just took in 2014, so it's right. like you can't then say. Anyways, mm-hmm. there's it's very sticky. Yeah, it thing. seems to me Ukraine's the sacrificial lamb, maybe in this, and that it's other countries that Putin would say that's that's the harm that I feel like from your NATO countries yeah. getting too close to Russia, things of that nature. I, I think maybe that's where what's really in the back of his mind, as you've heard some people report uh, that there there's an end game here, and it's not. Ukraine necessarily. Well, and that's where I think your discussion of proportionality is so important. So as we've mentioned, there's rights to go into war. There's the whys, but there's also these hows, which we've sort of talked a couple of already. It's uh, respecting the non-combatant, though in the Ukraine conflict, that's going to be an increasingly difficult thing, I think, for the for the Russian military in particular, because Ukraine basically just handed out military equipment to the populace and said you need to defend your country yeah and so the idea of knowing who is a combatant and non-combatant at this point i have no idea how you would even do that yeah Yeah. and and i think it's really important to remember that any reports you get out of a war zone i mean they call it the fog of war for a Mm. reason Mm. it's 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 going to be a while before we know anything about what uh, we've heard how real anything we've heard uh about anything yeah. really is and um so i would just caution against rush to judgment on many of these things and just yeah. sort of be careful to be discerning i think asking these questions about justice and the justice of the 
the justification for going to war. These are legitimate questions that you can have some discernment around. But in terms of, I think, you know, eight days in, Hmm. evaluating, you know, the reports, uh, 12 days in, evaluating reports about what's, you know, who's been bombed. Hmm. Uh, You know, mistakes happen. You know, intentional things happen. You're really only going to find out of that find be able to sort that out over time i think hmm. i would be careful about yeah we so here's we we don't know who right. i'm like i'm a pastor in mesquite <laughs> you know yeah. so like either the reports coming in are real or they aren't um you know so like when it says that they're bombing hospitals and orphanages and airports and um and those kinds of using cluster bombs which are illegal you know yeah. those kinds of things like either that's Either either it's true or it isn't. Um, I'm I'm. I think that you do get clarity with time on some of these things, but I'm not I'm not tempted to suspect that you know a year from now we're going to look back and go you know what that Putin he sure was a stand up guy I think you he know, was I, I yeah I think that's right but I also think that what happens over time is that eyewitnesses come forward. Right now we're getting media reporting, and it's media reporting second and third hand you know and what will happen is there will be more direct eyewitness accounts for what's been going on and that will emerge as there's some resolution to some of these you know situations that that are that are happening so i I, i'm fully expect people are bad actors in Mm. this there's no question problem is um it seems to me we don't have time to wait to see what gives us more clarity later on down the road. We're having to make decisions in real time now over how we're going to react. Yeah, you know? I'm I'm really talking about, I think, uh, you know, officials are having to make those decisions, right. and they're going to have to make decisions. Right. And the fact is they have a lot more information than what's coming out in the True. media. And so they have the yeah. opportunity to be more discerning. I think and what I was really talking about is from a Christian mm. point of view whose who's sources of information are limited to the media, mm-hmm. I think it's just wise to pray for the innocent, sure. to uh, help the innocent in whatever way you can, uh, but not to assume you know too much about just because you listen to the latest news report on CNN or whatever, because they're reporting. I, I'm not saying they're intentionally lying. It, I'm just saying the fog of war is such mm. that the reports that come out of these war zones are not accurate all the time right I'll go, up front. I'll go even further. If if you listened to the latest re- news report on CNN, you, you you shouldn't just be humble about what you know. You should assume you know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and this gets back to a lot of what we've talked about with um, having to make moral decisions. You know, I'm thinking about these these Ukrainians who haven't thought about you know what is what is my calling for. In terms of loving my neighbor in a moment like this, you know, and my 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 whole city may be getting bombed from tens of miles away, or the, the Russian soldier who's a Christian who's driving into Ukraine and potentially assuming this was a, a mission of liberation, only to find potentially something completely opposite happening. And so, when it comes to war, you know, this is one of the great tragedies of war is not simply, though I I, I even hesitate to words you'd sim- use the word simply. It's not simply that thousands of people are going to die. At the very least, thousands of people are going to die. But thousands and thousands more are going to have to make 
moral judgments in split seconds with small amounts of information, the fog of war all around them, and they're going to have to live with yeah. those choices for the rest of their life. Yeah. And that's a, I, I want to speak a, to those concerns with a lot of humility. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to second guess when you're not the one who's in the midst of it having mm-hmm. to decide. Yeah, gosh. Um, I'll tell you a cool thing I heard. You may have heard this, but people crossing over into Poland, they said that not one refugee center has been built, that families in Poland are actually taking in all of these people into their homes That's and awesome. feeding them. I thought, just what a witness. That's such a great That's awesome. testimony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's good. I, you know, I mean, this is a little bit of a weird twist on this, but back to the subject about what to do when governments act unjustly. And even if it's not unjust, if they're just making uh, decisions that are um, beyond their legitimate uh, role, um, you know, we, we're just coming out of a pandemic when governments told churches they couldn't gather and told churches they couldn't share communion and that they couldn't sing and that they couldn't, you know, and, and, and I don't think, I, there's a lot of churches that haven't exactly covered themselves in glory in the way they responded to that. Uh, and and relatively few who sort of dug in their heels and said the church is the the government's overreaching and they have their domain but the church has its domain and it's you know got its own source of authority and uh, guidance and so I, I do think that um, we weren't even in a hurry through that process right as as believers we had lots of time to contemplate but a lot of unknowns. Hmm. And so I think um, sort of deciding from a distance how well other people are doing when we're kind of just coming out of our own need to grapple with to what extent we bow and submit to the authority of governments, uh, I think humility is called for, hmm. given our some, own history. There are, there are biblical principles, you know, setting, setting just war theory aside, and it's seven— uh, key principles. There are biblical principles that I think we can fall back on. You know, Kyle, this there, just war assumes a certain state of affairs in modern warfare, and I would even say ancient warfare probably challenged some of these assumptions. Mm-hmm. This this idea, for instance, of let's go back to the original example of the Israelites or the Jews in um, in Persia who were told to go and destroy the the people who hated them. It's an act of war, right? I mean, you're seventy-five thousand people die. That's war, right? Did they put on uniforms first, like, hmm. um, or were they all civilians? You know, I mean, yeah. how, how do we, yeah. how do we, how do we make that? And, and if you're a Ukrainian dad, and a Russian tank comes down the street and turns its, uh, turns the muzzle of the cannon towards your home, can you grab your Henry forty-four and and pull the, <laughs> and pull the trigger? You know, like this, in the Old Testament. Um, there's a verse where um, the Lord, the Lord in the law, the Lord commands Israel to think this way. He says, "If a thief breaks into a home and he's struck so that he dies, the one who struck him is not to receive blood guilt. He is not to be guilty of that person's blood. He was defending his home. He was defending his property. He had a right to do that." And right? interestingly enough, this statement is made. It's specifically with 
the fact that he could not have known any more than he did right. because it's specific between night and day. He says if it's day, he's going to have some more information, and mm-hmm. he should be able to have the wisdom to know, hey, this guy's maybe not presenting a threat. We can figure this out. But yeah, if it's He opened at night, the wrong door. Oops. Right. right. But if it's at night, the Lord's actually saying your the responsibility you have to defend your life and the life of those God's entrusted to you is important enough that you can act without knowing all the information in a in a God honoring way and with the right intention, you know some of the things we've listed here, uh, and that action actually is innocent. Yeah, which is pretty powerful. I, I I think there's a temptation in a lot of modern Christians to take on a semi Marcionite um, posture about war and violence, pitting the New Testament against the Old, and it's understandable. I mean, like you look at the Old Testament, and it certainly doesn't seem like the same God. Right. I mean, there are some who would even say it's not the same God. We, we right. worship Jesus, the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament, who was all about war and such. Um, but I think that's, that is an unbiblical and historically unchristian heretical perspective. We must be informed by the Old Testament scriptures um, as well as the New, and not forget that in the end, when Christ comes, the picture in Isaiah is that he wages war. And that the hem of his garment is dripping, soaked in the blood of his enemies. That's that's the future of Christianity. And it's not it's not a cozy sort of tip tiptoe through the tulips kind of picture of Jesus. Um, you know, he he has a sword that comes out of his mouth and he's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh. You know, I mean, like that's the that's the kind of the God that we serve. Um it doesn't mean that Christians then, therefore, each of us have the right to go about and do Jesus' bidding, march around with swords. And um, but I, I do think principles of self-defense uh, that that we find clearly delineated in the Old Testament are still part of God's vision for the world. You know, a just world, anyway. Well, even in the New Testament, and you know, everyone makes a big deal about some of the specific statements that Jesus makes about turning the other cheek, which seems to be much more uh, reputational and legal. When you look at the details of those passages, as you mentioned, Ben, um, other passages they mentioned is, you know, if someone tries to uh, steal your tunic, give him your cloak also, you know, in these passages of uh, a lack of resistance, which is interesting because the apostles seem to do an awful lot of resisting <laughs> over the course of the book of Acts. Um, and even when his disciples were carrying swords, the night Jesus was going to be crucified, his he asked his disciples, hey, do you have swords on you? And they said, well, we've only got two. And he's like, that's fine. That's, that's enough. That's plenty. And then when Peter uses the sword to defend Jesus, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. Jesus tells him, put your sword back. He does not say, why did you bring that? Or you shouldn't have swords. He says, put it away. Yeah. Interestingly enough to assume you may need that later and or <laughs> the only person you should not be defending right now is me. No, it's not the time for that. It's not the time for that. And so uh, I think even people's perception that the old that the New Testament is explicitly against self-defense, I think, is pretty shallow. Well, yeah. I think we, to a certain extent, maybe we over-realize or over-interpret the passages about the cheek and the, the tunic, because he notably didn't say, if someone stabbed you in the left chest, you know, give them to your right, you know, right? I mean, a slap is a very different risk and level of harm than a mortal uh, blow. And so even if you just look at it in kind of a naive, well, you know, t- 
take a slap, but you don't have to stand there when someone's going to gun you down, you know. Uh, I think we just sort of over-apply yeah. um, some I, of these principles. I, I and, and just to speak a word for the martyrs, um, hmm. there also is something powerfully transformative when somebody wields radical peacemaking. Yes. The weapon of radical peacemaking. You know, the image of the guy who stands in front of the tank. Is that in Taiwan? Um, Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. Yeah, China. It's an enduring image for a reason. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think... You know the 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 story of the ceasefire in World War One, where at Christmas they laid down their arms and, um, and and celebrated Christmas together. These these are those are the moments that sort of punctuate the constant noise of war in our society with something transcendent, and it's usually um, in many cases it's the emphasis of, it, it's the impact of Christ, and so I I, I do believe. Ethics is never; it's always messy. Okay, um, and so it would be easy to say there's a one size fits all to every situation, and it's just not the case. Hmm. There will be times, I think, when it is right, and God expects you to stand up and defend your home, defend your wife, defend your kids. I know there's a notable pastor who um, who said once he was asked, "What would you do if you saw you walked in and your wife was being ravaged?" Um, and he would you would you shoot the guy? Would you attack him? And he was like, No, I just don't think I I don't think I would. I don't think I could. I, and I'm like, You that's the wrong answer. <laughs> I, I don't care who you are. That is the wrong answer. You have an obligation to your wife. You made promises, right? And God expects you to stand up and protect her. Now, if if some guy slapped that pastor on the cheek, he can decide if he wants to turn the other one also, and he probably should. Um, there, there, there may be a Christian obligation to yeah. turn the other cheek in that instance, but defending the weak and the helpless, that to me is the other side of the Christian obligation coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, it's, it's tough. It's, yeah. So um, the, the 20th century was, by almost any estimation, the bloodiest century in the history of human humanity. Um, it the number of people who died at the hands of violence uh, dwarfed any century before the 20th. Um, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 million people died by violence in the 20th century. When you figure World War One, World War Two, and then close to 200 million just under communism in the second half of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> Pope John Paul II, who was uh, no stranger to living under tyranny, who, who lived under Soviet and communist tyranny, tyranny in Poland uh, throughout a big chunk of the 20th century. And then he himself, along with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, were played no small roles as it related to bringing down communism in the 20th century. But he said this, and I wanted to maybe as a kind of a final lap around the room here, uh, get your comments on this and and maybe any concluding comments you want to make <clears throat> about this subject. He said this, the cause of peace will not go forward by denying the possibility and the obligation to defend it. Say that again. The cause of peace 
In other words, if you're interested in peace, the cause of peace will not go forward by denying the possibility and obligation to defend it. Um, he's, he's really raising the possibility here, I think, that um, you can say you're interested in peace, but you can't be passive about defending, defending it, right? If you expect mm-hmm. it to, to exist and to, and yeah. to perpetuate mm-hmm. into the future, right? I think if, uh, yeah, if you think that you can maintain the peace by doing nothing, you're lying to yourself. Yeah. You, you have, there most likely will come a time that you have to stand against something that is going to infringe on true peace being experienced. And so you've got to be ready and you've got to be expecting it at some point that there will, it's the world we live in. It's, it's yeah. the fallenness of man. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would put together two quotes, one from Psalms and one from Tolkien. Um, one of them is uh, Psalm 82, where it says, To give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I, I totally agree that uh, the reason Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, is because they will be people who have to stand up and stand out against what many others will attempt to do. Yeah, there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Yeah. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's important for us to realize that, to your point, Van, peace is something that must be achieved, and it's something we are called to create out of the chaos that is the world. The one thing that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate, maybe because of the the absolute blessedness we've received in the, in the Christian West for many, many years, is we have been given— the gift of believing that life is not brutal. And I think it's an illusion that's falling apart around us. I think the 20th century has reminded us of that. It, it brings to mind the, the words of Faramir. So Faramir was a, uh, a border guardian of his kingdom in the book The Lord of the Rings, and he was uh, very realistic in his concept about what war was about and what it was for. Um, and I, I'm not a soldier. I've, I have no claim to being a a man who really understands the experience of violence or any of these things, and so I want to have this with a lot of humility. Um, but I love what he says in um, The Two Towers. He says, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Yeah. And I think this concept of defense is so important. Christ has called us to be those who defend what is good in the world, even at great personal cost. Yeah, that verse you read from Psalm 82, the context there is God talking to the Bene Elohim, the, the divine ones who God has doled out responsibility for the nations to, uh, to whom he's doled that out. And, um, and so it, it's really, it, it's set within a national context that, that nations have the responsibility to do this. Governments have the responsibility to do those things. Um, and to the extent that they don't, God judges them. And so I think my my prayer is that um, Western nations, uh, you know, nations part of NATO, the UN, anybody who, who has the ability to do it, they would act in a manner that uh, toward those ends to rescue the helpless by whatever means possible. I understand we need to avoid escalation, and that's 
Gosh, I mean, it's always been. I mean, you read the history. I went back and read some of the Cold War history just to just to try to help understand the historical context where we find ourselves today. And it has never—it's it, it, like it's walking on thin ice. It's walking on eggshells. I mean, um, whenever nuclear bombs are involved, it's just next-level, sneaky, tactful kind of government action. And so I don't pretend to have the answers there. I don't know anything. Um but we need to be praying for our government leaders that they'll act justly um, and love mercy and walk humbly uh, before God, as we all should. That the people with their fingers on the buttons um, will, will, will know the right thing to do. That God will give them the ability to see that. I, I also think you know, this idea of protecting the peace, guarding the peace— and not sort of blithely assuming that the peace will continue with no regard for having to defend it. Um, it, it makes me think of, you know, stories of conscientious objectors. Um, I think sometimes you can be a conscientious objector in the name of peace. Hmm. Sometimes, like, you know, there's a movie called A Hidden Life, and it's um, Terrence Malick's latest film, and very, very good film. Um, about the, it's the story of Franz Jagerstadter, I think is the guy's name. And he was a conscientious objector to participating in the Nazi military in, Ger- in Germany during World War II. You could say that his conscientious objection was a, a brave and robust stance for peace. Um, he, was, he was doing his part to put an end to the war um, by not taking part in it. You know, there were other conscientious objectors on the other side, conscientious objectors to World War II. There was a movie Mel Gibson made about one such conscientious objector. What was the guy's name? Some of you will remember. Desmond Dawes. Desmond Dawes. Yeah, and the, and the, and the uh, Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge was the name of the film. But it's a true story about a guy who was a conscientious objector for religious reasons. He was also a Christian. So we had a Christian in Germany as a conscientious objector. We have a Christian in... The United States is a conscientious objector. Both of them suffer for their conscientious objection. One of them in Desmond Dawes ends up going over as a medic, and he saves as many people as he can. So there's a variety of ways, I guess is the point I'm trying to drive at. There's a variety of ways that Christians have seen fit during times of war to engage for the cause of Christ. Sometimes, you know, it's it's Gary Cooper... In um, Sergeant York. Sergeant York. Sometimes it's pulling the trigger. Sometimes God calls Christians to hold a gun and pull a trigger. Sometimes they hold a medic kit. Sometimes they sit in prison and are are and face firing squads. Sometimes they rush to the front lines um, of the refugee crisis, like you're seeing in Eastern Europe. Sometimes they open their homes, like the Christians in Poland um, are doing. You know, there's. Sometimes they take in orphans in the countryside like they did in England. You know, there's, there's things that Christians, many different ways that, that Christians can engage during times of war. Um, I, I, I think that I've said too much already. I'll just say to never forget, in, in the midst of, I like the term, I like the, this expression, the fog of war. There's something that should never be cloud. we should never be cloudy on, and it's God's sovereignty. Um. There are many things that we don't know in war, but God's got perfect knowledge. He's omniscient and um, omnipotent and omnibenevolent, and we know that he has a plan 
trusting that and relying on prayer, I think, are central Christian responses uh, during times of war, no matter where you are. Let me let me just close with a little story, and and maybe then a call to prayer. Um, ben, you may remember this. Uh, we were pulling into the parking lot many years ago at a Dickie's barbecue. Yeah, I remember here that. in the area. And all you had to do was say Dickie's barbecue. I yeah, this. and we pulled into the parking lot and. A young woman came staggering out between the cars as we were pulling into the parking lot, and she was completely covered in blood. And um, I immediately swung into a parking space and told Becca to keep the kids in the car, and I jumped out and ran to see what I could do about her. And what had happened was she'd just been assaulted by a guy in a van uh, who was in the parking lot and was actually sitting on the on the running board of the van, putting boots on because he was going to come after her. And um, so I immediately ran inside Dickie's and said, call 911. There's a guy that's assaulted this woman out here. And then I went running back outside and I got between, now he was, you know, maybe 70 yards away. The woman was leaning against the wall at Dickie's. And um, I got between him and the woman and I pointed my finger at him and I said, you are in big trouble. <laughs> I said, I said, I've called the police and you're going to get it, you know. And he started running at me like he was going to come after me, you know. Well, about that time, these two big burly meat cutters from Dickie's came out because they'd heard me say this woman had been assaulted. And they were going to come out and see what they could do about it. And, uh, I mean, they were these big burly guys. And as soon as they came out the door, all of a sudden he stopped <laughs> and just kind of stood there in the parking lot trying to decide what to do. About that time, you heard the police sirens, and uh, he started sort of walking back toward his van slowly, and then all of a sudden, he took off sprinting and hopped a fence and ran down the alley in the neighborhood and left his van and the woman and everybody there. Anyway, long story short, the police caught him, and we had to give a statement that came to our house, and, you know, but here's my point. You know, in the midst of those kind of situations when you're operating with very little information, you kind of have to make to Ben's point earlier, hard decisions without adequate information. But when push comes to shove, I think as a believer, you have to make a decision in the interest of protection, protecting someone. Mm. Um, and I think all over Ukraine, there are dads making hard decisions about what to do for their families, and there mm -hmm. are moms making hard decisions about what to do for their families, and there are moms in Russia who haven't talked to their sons and don't know where they are. And, and, and there's some indication that they've been deceived mm -hmm. about things. And mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening and, and Christians generally to pray for everybody involved that in the midst of split second decisions and inadequate information, that they will be given courage to act boldly in the interest of what's just and right and good. And we, from our vantage point, can't know all of that for them. But, mm -hmm. but we just need to pray that God will help them in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. Do what's right. Do what's loving and do what leads to peace, even if in the moment they don't have any peace. The Christian's primary calling in this world is to be an agent of the gospel of peace and reconciliation until Christ returns. 
When he returns, he promises that wars will cease, that he'll make all things new, and that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. In the meantime, we live in a fallen world and will therefore face wars and violence on sometimes a global scale. The principles of Christian just war theory can help us navigate such circumstances by providing a framework for addressing our questions. But only God has perfect knowledge. Only God judges without error. So what can we do? Well, we can go into the world with peace. We can have courage. We can hold on to what is good and honor all men. We can strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, and help the suffering. We can share the gospel. We can love and serve our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit until Christ returns. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.